Welcome to the Twimmel AI Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Charrington. All right, everyone, I am here with Mike Del Balso. Mike is the co-founder and CEO of Tekton. Mike, welcome to the Twimmel AI Podcast, or I should say welcome back to the Twimmel AI Podcast. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Happy to be back after a couple of years now. A couple of years. So we recorded uh, our first interview in March of 2018. So it's like two and a half years. It was episode number 115. And we just published 417, so 300 episodes ago. Wow. <laughs> and that's not even considering 2020 years, which make it seem way longer. Yeah, it's like three <laughs> decades ago. Uh, that's nuts. Well, I'm happy to be back. And congrats on having, f- what, 415, 417, is that what yep. you said? Uh, yep. Wow. That's a, that's quite an accomplishment. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Happy to be back. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Absolutely. And you've been busy yourself. When we first spoke, you were at Uber and we were talking about Michelangelo, the platform that you built there to help scale and operationalize machine learning. And you left Uber to help other folks do that. When did you, how long has it been? Yeah. So beginning of 2019, right at the end of 2018, that's when myself and some of the other folks that helped build the Michelangelo system, we kind of split off to help other folks solve similar problems. So a company is called Tekton. Uh, we build an enterprise feature store for machine learning. And uh, happy to tell folks about that uh, today. But yeah, that started. So we've been doing that. We're almost two years into that. Wow. Wow. One thing I'm curious about is Michelangelo kind of encompassed a ton of features, not to overload that term. And you could have done a lot of things in the space, but you chose to focus on the kind of feature store part of it. Uh, Maybe, you know, share a little bit of that to help contextualize, you know, the, the way you think about the overall problem of operationalizing machine learning. Yeah, for sure. Well, so been doing this a long time now. <laughs> and, uh, you know, before building this stuff at, at Uber, I actually was uh, at Google and I worked on the machine learning systems that power the ads auction at Google. And they had been doing this for many years and they had really great systems to power these core processes that run Google's business, right? Show, and determining which ads to show. And it's very financially important and super highly productionized. And, you know, at Uber, we were starting from not zero, but, you know, we just had a handful of models in production. It was kind of early days for machine learning at that time. And uh, we went through this journey at Uber uh, over a period of like two and a half, three years, where we, we brought in the right tooling and uh, we really unlocked the ability for the data science and the analytics teams to uh, really build machine learning systems and deploy them in production. And so during that time, I was, you know, thinking about, hey, what is, you know, how does this look when it's done right? And I was thinking a lot about my time at Google and with these really amazing large models updated all the time. You know, really, uh, we didn't use the term ML ops at that time, but things were highly productionized and had a very DevOps and modern ML ops feel. And so 
you know, we had to build the whole stack at Uber. We started that 20, in 2015, and there was not a lot of good uh, ML infrastructure, ML tools at that time. And going through that journey, I had the chance to really uh, kind of understand the value of every single component to the ML stack as we added it, right? We added a model serving layer and, you know, how many use cases did that unlock and how much, how much did it make it easier for teams that were trying to put ML in production and built a model training system. And then we connected them and we built all the different components. And what we found was that the, so we always hear, you know, teams struggle with, with data and data scientists spend 85% of their time uh, cleaning data. You know, I'm sure, I'm sure every single, you know, podcast guest has said that at one point, <laughs> that, you know, so uh, we we also found though that after kind of solving spending eighty five percent of their time on that, there's another kind of like hidden eighty five percent of the time it takes to get something into production as well. Yep. And so, um, and I get that that adds up to more than a hundred percent, but that's also like kind of the point. And the uh, the core of that was these 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 data challenges that were preventing people from getting to production. And as we built out. What at the time was just kind of like data infrastructure that we were building into the machine learning system and we were building in these kind of core data workflows into the machine learning uh, platform uh, at Uber. We found out that that unlocked a lot of value. And so what what does that mean? Um, more specifically, it allowed teams to get into production, to go to production really quickly because before they would have to, they would be really like coming up with some cool model prototype and then have a bunch of uh, data engineering that they would have to do to get that, that model in production. And uh, a lot of the kind of feature store capabilities, we didn't even call it feature store right away, are things that unlocked that path to production really quickly for uh, data scientists who are just trying to uh, build their models. And uh, the second element there was making just in terms of in terms of machine learning as a uh, like an organization thing, the feature store really allowed for different teams to be able to reuse each other's work, and so it really kind of like led to the scaling of machine learning across the organization really quickly. Because you know we would have teams uh, that have a variety of models that they want to build, but they're all kind of similar. They're all kind of using similar and related data. And so uh, they would probably have very high overlap in the number of, in, in which features they want to use across those models. And so this provided a way for teams to share and reuse and kind of have this canonical uh, catalog of these features that allowed for like kind of like a Cambrian explosion of machine learning at the company. And it wasn't even really something that we realized at the time, but kind of looking back on it and doing reflections and reviews, we were like, oh, that was really the, the component that was the most useful in unlocking machine learning at the company. And so we spent a lot of time formalizing, like, what is a feature store and, and what are the bounds of it and how, how, you know, how, how, does, how is it used? And that's why we really focused on that area. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, it does. It makes me think of uh, a question that I've asked a number of folks. We may have even talked about this a couple of years ago. Talking to folks about a feature store, there's you know, there's often a, a set of folks that are, are super excited about it and get this idea of feature reusability and wanting to make it easy for you know the next data scientist that has to deal with customers or products or some of these core ideas that a given business deals with over and over again, uh, you know, wanting to make it easy for them to, to use pre-built features. 
there's a core set of folks that, that get excited about that. There are other folks that are somewhat hesitant and worry about the burden it puts on a data scientist to, you know, they're essentially then if they publish a feature into a feature store, kind of owning a product, that feature that they have to then maintain. And, you know, they may be confronted with requirements from other data scientists that are not really in line with what they're trying to do. There's a little bit of tension between making it really easy for folks to solve their own problem. And then you put in this kind of reuse infrastructure that promises to make the overall ecosystem faster, but it does require, you know, potentially sacrifices on the part of individual data scientists. And I'm curious, is that something that you run into? Is that, how has that evolved kind of over the past couple of years in terms of in practice and and the way you see folks use these kind of tools? Yeah, I mean, this is, I guess that's a core collaboration problem, right? Why do teams want to do this in the first place? Well, the reason is because these efficiencies that you mentioned. I talk to companies every day, I see it firsthand, there will be, two data scientists who sit right next to each other and they're building uh, the same 10 features or the same 100 features and either they don't know that the other person is building the same features or they know about it and then they don't have a way to reuse it. They don't have they don't have that kind of path to build that into their model. And then there's that kind of third element of like, hey, I actually do have a way to reuse this, but you know, I don't know if I am going to be able to trust that this person's going to maintain this data pipeline this feature at the qual- the level of quality that I care about. Is this person going to be on call for this pipeline? Is Does this person think of it as seriously as I do? You know, I could probably work something out with them, but, you know, it's probably just easier for me to build my own thing, even though it's going to be a, a hassle. I want to I want to save this future larger hassle. And so these are kind of problems, collaboration problems that can be solved by a uh, central platform, right? So um, within a feature store, of course, the feature store tracks the, the kind of data, the feature values and the functions or the pipelines that generate these features. But there's also like a variety of metadata, which is like a pretty important component of the feature store, metadata that are tracked for these features to allow different organizations to kind of apply policies for reuse, right? Who's the owner of this feature? And what level of kind of productionization or SLAs are they promising for this feature? Are they promising, is this used in like a tier one system or a tier two system? And different organizations have different ways that they think about this kind of stuff. Is it an experimental feature, a production feature, or a completely dev feature? Having this kind of metadata and this transparency of this metadata is the first step to allowing these teams to collaborate. Um, But one One kind of pattern that we're beginning to see in many organizations also is there is this notion of these kind of like analytical data pipelines and then these operational data pipelines. Think of analytical as being data that doesn't actually get used in my product or in production in some way, but it's just something I built for reporting or just like a one-off like analysis. Hey, I want to I want to estimate what the sales forecast is going to be at the end of the year or something like that. And then the operational pipelines are, you know, things that run every day or potentially real time. They're using the product. They're productionized. They have SLAs. You, you want to be on call for them. And so a, another kind of uh, pattern we're starting to see in organizations is that beyond they, they recognize that individual data scientists need to be able to get stuff in production on their own. But as what they have built becomes useful to beyond just their single use case, 
there tends to be these kind of central, you know, most, a lot of companies have these ML platform teams and the ML platform teams often dedicate some resources to like managing the core feature pipelines for the company. So, so rather than just having a data scientist now have to worry about owning this feature that other people will consume uh, and then they'll have all these extra expectations of them uh, a central kind of like feature team as a sub team of the, the ml platform team is uh, a, a common pattern we're beginning to see and they'll kind of take over the most use and the highest value features to uh, to guarantee their correctness etc and uh, that's actually a pattern we use in the michelangelo team as well are you talking about a level of rigor and sophistication that's fairly common in the kind of large Silicon Valley companies, but for traditional enterprises, certainly starting to see more and more platform teams forming, but it's not nearly as common in my experience. I'm curious if that's your experience as well. And if you can kind of maybe compare and contrast what you're seeing in traditional enterprises, both with regard to, to feature stores, but more broadly, kind of their journey to operationalizing machine learning? Yeah, I mean, it really depends on the company, but we're, there's a lot of companies who are, are being told, hey, we need, a, we need to figure out ML. We need to kind of, that's core to our strategy. Yeah. And they're spinning up an ML platform team and ML infrastructure team, or it could be kind of like an advanced analytics infrastructure group. Mm-hmm. And um, it's hard, you know, often it's hard to find people who, know this stuff well or it's hard to like learn this stuff in the first place and a, a big challenge that a lot of these companies have is that they're still not kind of at like data maturity so then building like ml maturity on top of that is a, a tricky spot to be probably the biggest element in technically that's the challenge is you have to be in a pretty good spot with your data infrastructure first and a lot of these companies you know they're trying to hop on the ai the machine learning wave while they're still mid-migration to cloud, or they have a ton of data silos, or they're trying to figure out how to adopt streaming data at the same time, but they want to build machine learning using streaming data. So kind of like that core infrastructure and the core data is something that I would say is like one of the top priorities to to focus on and, and really work on as you're building out the ML platform team. But then also kind of on top of that, you want to build ML ops processes and uh it's a super fragmented space right now, and I think it'll stay like that for a while. The ML ops, all the different tools that can fit in the ML ops pipelines, but that stuff you can figure it out and get started with. There's a lot of good options out there, and you know, just go start using Kubeflow. A lot of teams can just pull that in and, and get going. But a specific challenge that teams face there is kind of the boundary between that infrastructure, that data, and the kind of ML ops tooling. And we see a lot of kind of for example, example like see a lot of auto ML systems that do really nice demos where you know they'll say, okay, let me just drag in this training data.csv into my auto ML system, and then you know I have this amazing model now and it's productionized. But it's like, where did that training data.csv come from? That's actually the, the whole hard part here. And uh, and then how do I use that in production? And so you know practically like I want to calculate a feature on a stream I want to share share something with my colleague a lot of these uh, elements are challenging and uh, and I think like getting started with the infrastructure and then some of the just like core ml ops frameworks like Kubeflow is a great option is just a great way to get started mm-hmm. on top of that yeah, kind of digging into the feature store and kind of what it really means technically 
Yeah, I'm curious your sense for, you know, what are the kind of core components or, or capabilities? I think at the highest level, like you can kind of group it into online and offline and, you know, those have different requirements. Um, but I've, you know, referring, I think we actually talked about this at, at one point, like, you know, there's different, you know, feature stores will do like automatic backfilling and, you know, have all different abilities. I'm, I'm curious what you... You know, and maybe the way to lay it out is in terms of, you know, what do you need when you're just getting started and gives you kind of the 60% of the bang for your buck or uh, your 80%? And, and what are the capabilities that uh, more mature teams tend to look for or, or need to build? Yeah, it's, it's very interesting because the space of needs is really large. So different teams need totally different things. And it really comes down to kind of what are their data needs for their models and the ML things that they're trying to build. So if you're a company where that is only doing kind of batch analyses, there's no real-time component to your, to your company. There's no interaction, live interactions with the customer. The concept of a batch feature store is probably sufficient. And that's it's not so much different from um, what you would get from a standard data warehouse and some typical data pipelining tools. Where things start to get more complicated is when you you really have this operational environment, this production environment uh, on top of the uh, analytic environment or alongside it. And then you have to manage your machine learning development process in such a way that it interacts, that it plays well with the operational or the production environment. So a feature store kind of, what is it? It's a, a data system built for supporting ML ops workflows. And so it operates the data pipelines that generate feature values. It persists and manages the feature data itself. And then uh, it serves this feature data consistently across uh, production, you know, online and development offline workflows. And, and so we think of it kind of as like a central hub for feature data and the metadata that is used across ML models lifecycle and especially for sharing across an organization. Uh, so some specific things, you know, you mentioned backfilling. So, you know, feature stores are unique in that they, they map across the development environment and the production environment. And so when they have some special capabilities to allow when you add a new feature to automatically backfill and, and calculate historical values of a feature. So when you're training a model on all logins on the past six months or all purchases in the last year or something like that, uh, you don't have to wait another year for a feature to be calculated, right? Uh, for You don't have to log that feature for a year. Uh, you can generate, you can continually register new features and have uh, all of that training data uh, be instantly available. And so that's a, a pretty big uh, component of feature stores. But we break down the, the capabilities of a feature source roughly into five components, right? A transformation layer, which takes your raw data and generates feature values. A storage layer, so that's kind of like feature store. The storage layer, which organizes those feature values and persists them for use for retrieval online and offline. And then a serving layer that serves them online so real-time serving less than uh, so like low latency serving monitored etc and to also power training data set feature retrieval to build a model to generate a training data set so kind of 
a unified retrieval interface across the serving, across online and offline. So those are kind of the three main components that touch the data. And then a central registry that defines all of these features and contains that data and metadata, which is kind of like an immutable record of what was what was I using in production? What was available analytically at this time or that time? And a monitoring layer to ensure the correctness of features and the operational, you know, track the operational metrics of all of the, the data pipelines that are powering my model in production. Now, a lot of the... the- Elements that you talked about have kind of traditional analogs within the enterprise data ecosystem. Data catalogs have gotten more popular. Certainly there's data warehouses, Snowflake IPO, make sure that we all know about data warehouses, although that's been part of the enterprise data landscape for a very long time. But there's all of these independent tools that have played a role in helping enterprises do similar kinds of things. Is it, you know, easy to kind of put a finger on the the difference between, you know, those standalone components and, and a feature store? Or are you maybe even seeing organizations, you know, take their existing databases and data warehouses and data catalogs and kind of build a feature store uh, out of those things? Yeah, so those components make up, uh, those components are reused by a feature store. So a feature store really coordinates across, uh, like across a, a common orchestration data transformation orchestration system or a, a warehouse for storage or a data lake for storage. And uh, we don't reuse anything. We run our own kind of serving layer. Uh, but the goal, it's kind of important to recognize that the goal of a feature store is to provide really good access to data in the ways that ML ops workflows need that data. It's not to replace existing data infrastructure. So it's actually quite important for uh, the feature store to plug in and integrate quite nicely with what data infrastructure uh, a team, a company already has today that they're happy with. And, you know, this kind of goes back to actually like a, a lesson that uh learned uh, i learned building out michelangelo you know we would go to we we built michelangelo we would go talk to different teams internally hey you guys are building this kind of model could michelangelo help your team out and um it was never the case that a team would say hey i want to migrate this existing thing that's working for me onto (laughs) this other system that you're coming and telling me about it was always hey we have some pain points and maybe we can build v2 of what we're building uh, on your new system because that system solves all of these additional pain points and makes use of what is already working. And so this concept of being gradually adoptable and reusing as much of the company's existing data infrastructure such that there's as little duplication as possible is quite important for a feature store. I, th- I think the, the biggest distinction, though, is the concept of now we're talking about operational environment as well. And so that's the big uh, shift that a feature store also has to take into account. It's, it's, uh, there's this concept of a catalog of operationally available, vetted, productionized signals, features for use in models. On the note of kind of this evolution, what does it typically look like to deploy one of these? So that conversation that you had at Uber, I imagine you're having various versions of that conversation with teams today. And and what are you telling them it looks like to eventually kind of make their way to dynamic, always available feature store nirvana? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So at Tekton, we have a couple of deployment models and um, 
they range uh, from a fully hosted cloud service to a managed cloud service that lives actually in your uh, cloud account. So Tecton is completely cloud-based and the the distinction between those uh, deployment models that I just mentioned is that in one, it's, it's a little bit more similar to a Snowflake model where Tecton manages the whole Tecton cluster, uh, the whole feature store. We manage all the SLAs for it. You uh, pass your data into it. It's storing the features and it will serve features to you. And so the, your data comes into Tecton's account and we, and we manage the whole thing end to end. You don't need to have any engineers do anything internally to kind of maintain or support the Tecton uh, deployment. There's a separate deployment model, which is, um, which is preferred by some organizations, which actually has Tecton run in their Amazon account, uh, but still have our team manage that software. And this is becoming a more and more common uh, deployment model for enterprise data infrastructure, SaaS. Uh, it's, it's really, you know, have, have a company from the, from the outside uh, have their control plane talk into uh, connect to a data plane that lives uh, within the the customer's AWS account or whatever it is, and within that, there's a VPC where all that software runs and talks to the uh, data sources uh, internal to the customer's account, processes that data, and serves that data all within the customer's account. So their data never leaves their own account and. So you can imagine there's some larger enterprises that prefer uh, deployment models like that. Mm-hmm. Maybe let's talk a little bit about what you're seeing in terms of the, you know, for folks that decide to go this route, what does the ecosystem look like? You've got some open source uh, out there, particularly in the the Kubernetes community in Feast. There are kind of rumblings that some of the cloud providers will incorporate feature store capabilities into their offerings. What else are you seeing out there? And, and you know, your offering is cloud-based. You know, does that disadvantage you when the cloud vendors decide that they want to offer this as a, you know, feature store as a feature? I mean, it's going to be a battle, but, uh, you know, I'm <laughs> definitely not worried that they're going to build a, a better product or better feature store than than we will. The, you know, the space right now, there's a handful of uh, systems called feature stores, the most notable. So we kind of coined the term feature store a couple of years ago when we published a blog post at Uber uh, about Michelangelo. And we talked a lot about this mm-hmm. notion of a feature store. There's... Uh, couple of different projects that have come out and, and a number of kind of talks at conferences where different companies have have talked about, hey, this is how we implemented a feature store internally. One of the most notable is Gojek on, G, on GCP. They open sourced a pretty lightweight but very powerful uh, feature store that is quite good and people should check it out. It's really easy to get started with that. That is based on uh, Google right now. I'm sure it's going to be in uh, other clouds quite soon as well. And then Tecton offering is more of like a cl- uh, an enterprise-based offering. So with SLAs, hosting, uh, you know, being yeah. on-call, all of the enterprise capabilities. And I think we're going to see the cloud providers and the big data companies come in this space quite strong. I believe that 2021 is going to be the year of the feature store. Uh, I can't tell you how many companies come to us asking for a feature store without, you know, having a great understanding, like originally about what a feature store is, what what problems directly it solves for them, because 
they have a variety of problems and they know just, hey, I have so many data problems. How can the feature store help me out? And we have a lot of those discussions and just to help them get started in this space. Yeah, it's been an interesting evolution of the MLOps space in general. You know, just uh, in doing this interview and kind of reflecting on the fact that this was two and a half years ago that we were talking about feature stores, the first wave of products in the space, and it's more nuanced than this, but a lot of them were kind of these workflow end-to-end, we're going to try to slurp up your entire process and automate it. And yet, in my conversations with folks that were building and running these systems, you know, at Facebook and Google and Airbnb and others, one of the most important elements of what they're doing was this, you know, this feature store. Airbnb has Zipline, which is, you know, their yep. uh, kind of central repository. And I forget what it was called in Facebook, but they had theirs and Google had theirs. And and yet it's taken quite a while before you have started to see kind of commercial offerings in the space. Your company's relatively new uh, in terms of go-to-market and yet it seems like I agree 2021 is going to be this year where, you know, we're starting to see a lot more activity. And I'm curious your take on why that is. Like you have this market that you, <laughs> that you know is important and no one seems to be in it for a really long time. Or I should say few seem to be in it because there are, you know, some folks. But a lot of what I've seen thus far has been folks taking, you know, older technologies or technologies that weren't necessarily purpose built and trying to apply them to solving this problem as opposed to taking a, a purpose-built feature store approach. Yeah, I think um, the part of the trickiness here and one factor is just when you think of machine learning, you think of models and you think of, uh, you know, when people get started, what's the sexiest thing to work on? I want to get started on these cool models. And, you know, some people just jump straight to deep learning, which, you know, uh, you, I'm sure you've had a ton of people on the podcast say the way to do it is actually start as simple as possible with the simplest algorithm. And then you yep. kind of get more complicated after that. Right. And so th- what we see is the is teams, it, there's just kind of like this anti-pattern in um, in industry where teams kind of get started with at a kind of focusing on stuff that's slightly more advanced than what their needs actually are. And uh, they, they kind of over-invest in some of the, the model stuff uh, at first, which ends up being actually operationally easier to manage than the data pipelines that power these models. And so the teams that come to us, uh, come to us where they say, or they kind of say, hey, we actually thought we could repurpose a lot of our existing data infrastructure, just like plug it in directly to the models. But what actually happened was that's now where we're having a ton of pain, a ton of friction, and that's the core thing that's grinding the innovation from our data science teams to a halt. So, you know, we, we see a feature store to, to help us out there, but we already have this investment in this model stuff, and we probably should have done it the other order or or uh, kind of done those in parallel. And so it's, it's not a, a super obvious. There's all these kind of roadblocks and challenges you face that are not super obvious up front. But when you hit them, it's, it kind of just grinds things to a halt. One of, one of the things that we have that, uh, that, that I think we see that is like actually quite challenging for people to, it kind of makes, the, it really makes it obvious what some of the data challenges are when putting machine learning into production is that there's, there's kind of just a variety of elements, you know, the development and production environments are not the same. So you kind of have to map between those. And then 
we see teams where they have kind of constraints from what can be done in production mm-hmm. that affect what the data scientists are even allowed to experiment with. And that really kind of just like constrains, you know, what they're able to do. Deploying these systems is really complex as well. And and even just like monitoring and validation of these systems is not a solved problem. So when things break in machine learning, it tends to be kind of the data pipelines that break. And so these problems are super hard to debug also. So kind of investing in that layer ends up going uh, paying off in a big way when you're really trying to depend a core business process on these systems. Mm-hmm. You, you mentioned platform teams earlier as folks that are kind of owning these production feature pipelines. Is, is that the primary person that is that you see kind of leading the the feature store charge or does it does it ever come from data engineering and, and the data infrastructure side of the house or yeah um, good good yeah. question so the so there's a couple of things like why do people adopt feature stores in the first place and so it kind of comes there's kind of two paths there's teams who are just trying to get this one model, you know, they have this important use case for this fraud system and we mm-hmm. uh, need to be able to calculate features in real time and use our historical features. And it's just like a crazy engineering problem for us. And we just want a system that can handle that for us. So that's that's that kind of component. Another path uh, for people who are adopting feature stores is when they are trying to build out their ML infrastructure properly. And they're doing their research and they identify, uh, you know, I was in a conversation with a, a big bank the other day and they're showing their stack and right in the center, uh, their kind of ideal stack. And there's kind of data infrastructure, feature store, feature catalog right in the center, and then some of the modeling elements and the application elements on top. So they're just trying to take a very thoughtful approach to building the right infrastructure and the, and the right tooling. What we want to enable, the goal is to enable data scientists or analysts, whoever are building these features, to be able to go end-to-end and get their models all the way in production without requiring, without throwing things over the wall to the engineering teams um, for every single change that they have. You shouldn't need production or data engineers that really have to know or be involved in any way when a data scientist is making a change to their model in production. When that happens, we've seen a real kind of shift in almost like the roles. It kind of it makes data scientists much more owners of their work in production rather than uh, rather than being in a position where yeah, I handed it off to that team and they're handling it. I, I don't know why it's not working right now, and so. Uh, that has been like a really big cultural shift in teams that have adopted this, have kind of adopted this technology that allows data scientists to kind of get stuff into production on their own. Uh, so we we like to kind of have the people who build the systems be the owners of those systems. And then there's just instances where you have so many people who depend on these systems that you might want to centralize some components of that ownership. Mm-hmm. It is analogous to the transformation that's been happening over the past uh, 10 years or so with uh, traditional software engineering and DevOps and having you know, these pizza box teams that you know, own exactly. the life cycle of their services. Exactly. And um, yeah, and people, you know, sometimes a company will ask, OK, what's the, the, the right operational ML stack? And, you know, I don't think the, the space of needs is so is so large. I don't think there is one. And. Uh, it's, to me, it's kind of like saying, like, what's the right software stack, period, question mark, right? And it's just like, you know, it depends. And the answer is always it depends. And so, uh, you know, I, I kind of like give guidance to companies. of when you're trying to figure out what the right uh, approach is, uh, 
talk to someone who's done it before and they can kind of walk you through a lot of the challenges that you're likely to encounter. There's a lot of bottlenecks that you will hit when you have data scientists and engineers starting to collaborate for the first time or when you're trying to buy some software that you've never had to buy before you don't have an owner for the software there's just like a a number of elements that come to uh, cause a lot of challenges without being kind of thoughtful about things ahead of time and uh, on the data side we think obviously we think feature stores are like the right way to uh, to kind of unlock a lot of the the core ability to put models in production, features in production. And so uh, that's kind of the, the key reason why we got started with the feature store. Yeah. I mean, there's an interesting paradox in there where, you know, earlier you were um, alluding to folks that were choosing more complex technology than they needed for the thing that they were doing. The thought in my head as you were saying that was, yeah, I need to deploy a, you know, single, you know, team internal web app, I need Kubernetes, right? (laughs) And at the same time, your advice is talk to folks who have kind of gone down the road and consider things that you're likely to run into as you're making your plans. And, and, you know, that in many cases is what, you know, leads folks to kind of overbuild, right? They're kind of thinking far into the future, uh, at least that's an optimistic, you know, view rather than kind of playing with cool technology. Well, I actually mean, like, talk to someone who knows what they're doing, who can tell you, "Hey, don't overbuild." <laughs> someone who can, someone who can say, "You probably shouldn't be investing in that because you don't even have, you don't even have your data in the right place." That's yeah. kind of where I'm. Where I'm. The question that I'm trying to get to is like, you know, how does someone know if they should even be thinking about a feature store at all? Uh, or if it's, you know, a step or, or, or five ahead of them. And it sounds like the first question is, you know, do you have your data house in order? You mm-hmm. know, if you don't worry about that first, right? Yeah, be, yeah, I think the core kind of like the two biggest things are, are you building models that need to interact in real time? Uh, so do you have some online component to your machine learning application to your operational machine learning application, that's just like a key, like a pretty good indicator that okay, I'm gonna have, I'm gonna have this production environment. I'm gonna have to have a real time, real time serving in this machine learning application. Uh, very likely includes kind of uh, an online data storage element for my features, which I'm gonna have to manage. And as a data scientist, probably haven't done that before. So that's kind of one pretty important uh, kind of path. And then um, second is, are do we have more than a handful of models and more than a handful of features powering those, right? Uh, especially if they're being shared across those models. It, it goes from, I've seen teams kind of like manage their collaboration with, you know, a Google spreadsheet and they have a list of features that is, okay, this pipeline is here and this feature does this and just ask this person if you want to use it or if you want the code for it. And so I've talked to them and said, hey, this is working pretty well for us now. And uh, that's great when that works for you. And then a month later, they called me up and they were like, okay, so now we're at, you know, a couple hundred rows of this thing and things are kind of going crazy and we need a better way to manage this. So it's almost yeah. like when you have, get to that scale and you need, you need to start thinking about collaboration between your team and you want to have some efficiencies of scale as well. Mm-hmm. Features, you know, one of the uh, you, you you brought up uh, kind of deep learning earlier in the conversation is kind of a side comment. Um, 
you know, deep learning is kind of notable for not being as dependent on features and feature engineering as traditional ML models. Um, yeah. Is a feature store still relevant in that world or no, not as much? Yeah, good question. Um, so we see, we see teams use feature stores in two ways when they're doing deep learning. One is uh, to, to host pre-computed parts of their model. You can think of it as like, Use a feature store to do my embeddings properly and uh, and pre-compute my embeddings and then look them up in, in production. So that's a, a really big element of a feature store is kind of like making that stuff operationally possible and really easy. And then a second component is making sure the data is available. So, you know, you may have a, a deep learning model that let's say it's a, a recommendation model and it needs some input from, for example, your current search query. Right, that's one one input to the model, and then also some information about the user itself or users themselves, and maybe some information about the current page or the current product that they're looking at. That model needs to have access to all that information, that historical information about the user, item, etc. And it's really the feature store's responsibility to get that right information at the right time and deliver that information, those data uh, to that model. And they're effectively features at that point that we're passing into the model, though they're typically less processed features than uh, you might have in a non-deep learning uh, kind of model. You know, you bring that data up and make that available to that model. And that's really kind of the role of the feature store for deep learning models typically. Yeah, well, what it made me think of is, um, you know, presentations that I've seen from folks at like Google, for example, where they talk about one of the main issues that they see in production is, you know, for any kind of model, deep learning or otherwise, is the feature data just changing in semantic or being semantics or being missing or before you, you know, had, you know, something as nulls and then you change it to empties or whatever. It's just random things that, that happen in a pipeline that no one sees. And it's it sounds like what you're saying is that people use the feature store to kind of manage that infrastructure, that that process and, and uh, specifically the the data part. Yeah, having a common way to reference, like a common way to literally specify what data does this model need? What data does it need in production? Yeah. I'm making a prediction for this user and this item. How do I know which data to pass into the model for that purpose, for this this data for this user and this data for this item, for example? Um, but then all of that data that does, you know, we do use for that model, you know, we think of it as kind of making it like operationally ready for, for machine learning consumption for your actual ML application where there's a, a bunch of things you want to do uh, in terms of like validating that data, monitoring it for drift. When we talk about monitoring it for drift, it's like monitoring it compared to, you know, the, how the data looks today compared to how it looked last week and make sure the data doesn't look completely different. But also, does this data look similar to the data that the model was trained on in the first place? And, you know, is there, are there any indications that this model is um, start, starting to get a completely different data than it expects, in which case we don't really have any guarantees about its behavior. And it's, we can't really expect non-erratic behavior from a model in, in that situation. Awesome. Uh, well, great stuff here. Any uh, kind of parting thoughts or, you know, for folks that want to dig in deeper to this where they should look or... Words of wisdom being uh, <laughs> a couple of years into this journey, well, or more than a couple of years into this journey. Yeah, I would say I would say start simple. 
yeah, if you're interested in uh, learning more about feature stores um, or getting started with them, uh, come to tecton.ai and uh, and just leave us a note, get in touch, and uh, and we can chat and see how we can help. Awesome. Well, Mike, wonderful to catch up with you, and yeah, uh, great to see all the cool things you guys are up to. Yeah, thanks a lot. It's been fun. Awesome. Thank you. Great. All right, everyone, that's our show for today. To learn more about today's guest or the topics mentioned in this interview, visit twimmelai.com. Of course, if you like what you hear on the podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review the show on your favorite podcatcher. Thanks so much for listening and catch you next time.